Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Previously on Truth and Justice. About a week after Keow's death, detectives Royster and Davidson visited Troy and Jesse's apartment to ask about the murder. Jesse wasn't home, but Troy spoke with the detectives. Troy told them that he didn't know anything about the murder. Later, Royster talked to Jesse and ruled him out as a suspect. The incident when Jesse and Shauna slept together occurred on October 20th. The next day, the same day that Troy called the police and accused Jesse of raping and beating Shauna and assaulting him as well, Troy went to visit Detective Don Watts with Dallas PD's Cold Case Division. The day after Jesse slept with Troy's ex-girlfriend, Troy told police that it was Jesse who had killed Keow Gove. Very early into my investigation, I had suspected that Jesse's mom, Carol, had been the one pulling the strings very early on. At trial, she testified that her husband had been the one who called Crime Stoppers. She was adamant and repeated a few times that she did not call. Her statements just struck me as odd. Why would she be so insistent to make it clear that she didn't call? Christine went on to testify that Carol always favored Troy. He was her baby. We learned from his sister Christine's trial testimony that her mother Carol had told her that the police were looking at Troy for the murder. We also see evidence of this in the article. Watts says that as time was going on and he was continuing to pressure Troy, he didn't believe what Troy was telling him. This is before Troy had mentioned anything about Jesse. Watts asked Troy to take a polygraph, but Troy refused. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. But the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. Last week, one of the most world-renowned experts in crime scene reconstruction and criminal behavior analysis opened our eyes to a logical hypothesis as to who killed Kiao Go and how her murder came to pass. Jim Clementi believes that we are looking for a young or multiple young and criminally inexperienced offenders, and most likely an offender or offenders that Kiao knew or recognized. 
Jesse Eldred does not in any way fit this profile. In fact, it seemed to me that Clemente found the idea of Jesse perpetrating this murder absurd. And yet somehow Jesse was tried and convicted. Jesse was condemned to spend the rest of his life behind bars because of the testimony of one man, his brother Troy. Jesse was tried for this crime in 1996. The entirety of the prosecution's case rested solely in the narrative presented by Troy. In order for us to believe that Jim Clemente got it wrong, and Jesse Eldridge actually did murder Keow, we have to rely on the fact that Troy was telling the truth. Today we will break down the evolution of Troy Eldridge's story that led to Jesse's conviction. From his first contact with police in 1991, through his two affidavits, and through his testimony at trial, and we'll see how all of that has evolved into the story that he told me just two weeks ago in the back bedroom of a single wide trailer in Texas. Days after Kiao's murder, the Dallas Police Department was getting inundated with anonymous tips about who might have been her attacker. One of those tips was regarding a man who drove a light-colored pickup truck and lived in the apartments across the street from the school. The caller told police that this man was big and mean and violent. He had a criminal history and seemed like a likely suspect. We know now that the pickup truck the caller was referring to did not actually belong to Jesse Eldridge, nor had Jesse ever driven it. Nonetheless, Detective Royster proceeded to knock on Troy Eldridge's door. Troy didn't have a lot to say. He told Royster that he didn't know anything about the murder. Royster didn't make any indication in his report that he found anything suspicious about Troy's statement. He simply asked him if he could speak to Jesse. Jesse wasn't home, and Troy told Royster that he would have to come back another time if he wanted to talk to him. About a month later, Royster visited Jesse in the county jail. They spoke briefly, and Jesse was quickly ruled out as a suspect. About a year after this contact, Royster gave up on the investigation, indicating in his report that the prime suspect was a man named Kenneth Ray Williams. Then, in 1993, another detective picked up the case. Detective Don Watts worked in Dallas PD's cold case unit. He breathed new life into Keow's case. Watts spent the first several months of the investigation chasing down two leads, Kenneth Ray Williams and the White Camaro. Watts was digging deep into these leads. But all of that came to a screeching halt when an anonymous call came in from a woman who claimed to have information about the murder. The caller suggested that Watts contact Mrs. Carol Eldridge. And this is where the evolution begins. Don Watts' investigative notes indicate that this exchange happened on February 23, 1994, the same day that Troy wrote his first affidavit. It appears through his notes that he moved quickly, one phone call, and hours later he has a signed affidavit fingering Kiao's killer. Before we review what Troy had to say in this first affidavit, let's first look at Watts' timeline. Remember a few episodes back that I had pointed out that the verbiage in Watts' February 23rd note clearly indicates that this was not the first contact with Carol and Troy Eldridge. 
Since Watts left a lot of details out of his official report and notes, I had to look at his trial testimony for answers. One thing to note here is something that I found to be very odd. Don Watts was the lead investigator on this case. He is the one that followed the leads, interviewed the witnesses, sent evidence for testing, and ultimately swore out the arrest warrant affidavit for Jesse Eldridge. He was in fact the only law enforcement official who ever believed that Jesse killed Kiao. Without him, this case would have went unsolved, probably still to this day. The point here is that he is the one who packaged this case for the prosecution. It was his report that led to this trial. The odd thing is that the prosecution never called Don Watts as a witness. Let's remember back to Edward Eight's case. The longest testimonies in his trial were from the three detectives who investigated him. Dale Huckel, Jason Waller, and Melody McKay. Without their testimony, the state had no case. This is common practice. The state's burden is to prove all of the elements of their case through witnesses and testimony. In Jesse's case, we have Kenneth Gove identifying the victim, the first responders and first officer on scene corroborating the location of the murder, the medical examiner testifying that murder was the cause of death, and then we have Troy Eldridge, the reluctant witness, who testified that he saw his brother attack Kiao. When a prosecutor builds their case, we typically see a chronological order of events. The state will parade witnesses on the stand one after another, leaving no breaks in the timeline. Again, I'll reference back to Ed's case. Johnny Pryor identifies the victim as her cousin Elnora. She testifies that she is the one who found Elnora's body. She is followed by the first responder, then the first arriving officer, the 911 tape was played, then Jason Waller takes a stand as the crime scene investigator, then the ME who identified the cause of death, then Melody McKay who later assisted with the crime scene investigation, Kubia Jackson testified about the phone call to Elnora, then Dale Huckel described the investigation that led to Ed's arrest. Day by day, lead by lead, one witness after another, the state told the story to the jury without a single break in the timeline leaving no unanswered questions. This is how a prosecutor builds their case. But Jesse Eldridge's case is an entirely different animal. There was a three-year gap in the state's timeline at Jesse's trial. For over a year, the case was investigated by Detective Kyle Royster. From the morning Kia was found until he finally gave up on solving the case, Royster is the one who spoke to every witness, gathered every piece of evidence, and followed every lead. And yet, the state never put Kyle Royster on the stand. About one year after Royster filed Kiao's case away as unsolvable, Detective Don Watts reopened it. He is the one who was contacted by Carol Eldridge. He is the one who conducted Troy's first official interview. He is the one that convinced Troy to write his affidavits. And he is the one who made the case against Jesse. He was the state's case. All of this being known, the prosecution rested their case without ever putting Detective Don Watts, or any investigator for that matter, on the stand. This begs the question, why would the state not want Watts to testify? With such a weak case to begin with, why would they intentionally leave such a gaping hole in their narrative? 
Although the prosecution didn't believe that Watts' testimony would help their case, Jesse's defense attorney thought that he might solidify his. As bizarre as this case was up to this point, things just got stranger when Jesse's attorney called the lead investigator that put him away onto the stand. While on the stand, Watts reads from a report that was not included in the official file. He testified that the first note he has about Troy Eldridge was dated November 12, 1993, three months before any contact is indicated in his report. Throughout Watts' testimony, he is evasive and conveniently forgetful. He can't remember how many times that he spoke with Troy. He guesses around five or six. It seems that he spoke with Carol more than Troy, but again, he can't remember how many times. He does testify that it was in fact Carol who directed him to speak with Troy. He further states that every time he spoke with Troy, the meeting was always arranged by his mother. It eventually comes out that Watts spoke with Carol about the case on October 30th, 1993, two weeks before Troy was taken to the station for questioning. But even with that, the detective concedes that it's possible that he spoke with Carol before October 30th. He just can't remember. To paint a clearer picture of Watts, what I refer to as selective amnesia, I'm going to read to you a couple of short exchanges from his testimony. Here's a question posed to Watts by Jesse's attorney, Mr. Miller. Question. Isn't it true that Royster basically eliminated both Troy and Jesse Eldridge's potential suspects in this case early on? Answer. Not to my knowledge. I don't know if he did or not. Question. Don't you have the reports in your possession that indicated that they were looked at and not considered suspects later on? Answer. From what I understand reading it, it wasn't enough indication one way or another to say they are eliminated. These are the exact words from Royster's report that Watts is referring to. Quote, Mr. Eldridge, at a later date, was eliminated as a possible suspect in this case. Evidently, that wasn't clear enough language for Detective Watts to comprehend. Again, Watts was asked if Royster eliminated Jesse in his report, the report that I just read to you, and his response, quote, from what I understand reading it, it wasn't enough indication one way or another to say they are eliminated. And here's another example. Miller asked the following question regarding Kenneth Ray Williams, quote, was he ever eliminated as a suspect in this case by investigator Royster? Watts's answer, I don't know if he was or not. I don't think he was. Well, this is what Royster's report states, verbatim at the conclusion of his investigation. Quote, It is my opinion that Mr. Williams is the suspect in this offense. Once again, this direct language is not clear enough for Watts to understand. After reading the report, Watts doesn't know if Williams was eliminated by Royster. Selective amnesia. There is only one thing that Watts is crystal clear on. Troy Eldridge was telling him the truth, eventually, and Jesse Eldridge killed Kiao Gove. Now let's get back to the evolution of Troy's story. He knows nothing about the murder in 1991. Sometime in October of 1993, Carol calls Watts, speaks to him possibly a few times, and then on November 12th, or maybe before, 
Watts speaks with Troy for the first time. Rather than me sounding like I'm the one who's confused here, let me read to you directly out of the transcript. Question. Investigator Watts, when is the first time you talked to Troy Eldridge? I don't recall the date, sir. Is it before he gave you the first statement? Before? Yes. Do you have notes in your file that would indicate the first time you had any contact with Troy? Yes. Do we have that available to us? I have the folder here. I have the notes. So you can refresh your recollection and tell us at least when the first contact was? Yes, sir. Would you please do that? Sure. Do you want me to go back there and do it? At this point, the judge steps in. She says, Whatever. Mr. Blackman, do you have a copy of those notes? Blackman, yes, I do. Watts, I have one here from November 12, 93, showing I interviewed Troy Eldridge at Capers. But as I recall, it was, I met with him and I just briefly discussed it outside of the Capers office and set up an appointment, if I'm thinking right. The judge, what was the date on that one? Watts, November 12, 93. Judge, are you saying you think that you met with him a little prior to that date? Watts, I think I just had a, basically an oral interview with him, set up a time to meet at Capers and talk to him in a more controlled atmosphere. The judge, and where was that, outside the Capers office? Watts, yes, my first contact. Judge, was he down there on your invitation, I guess? Watts, I'm sorry, what? Judge, he had come down there at your invitation. Watts, I talked to him a little bit, and then we either won, elected to go down there, but I think it was the next day or something because he had to work. And then I went and got him, and he voluntarily came down to Capers and interviewed there. Judge, that's going to be November of 93? Watts, that's the date it shows here, yes ma'am. And then Jesse's attorney, Mr. Miller, comes back in. All right, investigator, he did not give you a written statement as a result of that interview that took place on November 12, 93, as I understand it. Is that correct? That's correct. Did you take notes from your conversation with him on November 12th? Yes, those are in the notes right here. Question. Just generally, I'm not going to ask you to read those. Did he indicate to you that he had any knowledge that might shed some light on solving this case? Answer. Well, the last sentence, Troy could not give anything that was considered evidence concerning this case. That was the last sentence on this particular note. So that's the beginning of Watt's interaction with Troy. Carol sets up the meeting, and Troy tells Watts that he knows nothing about the murder. One thing that has perplexed me is why then? Why, after two years had gone by, did Carol Eldridge finally decide that this was the time to turn Jesse in? Keep in mind that Carol has consistently stated that Troy never told her that Jesse killed Kiao. At trial, she simply says that, quote, she knew in her heart that it was Jesse. So put yourself in Carol Eldridge's shoes for a moment. There's a murder near where your sons live. Neither son says anything about any involvement in the killing. Two years go by, and all of a sudden you decide to reach out to the police and insist that your son knows something. Even though supposedly he hasn't said anything to you about the crime and relays that same information to the police. So why? Why now? What changed? I have an idea about what might have triggered Carol's sudden interest in the case. On the last page of Detective Royster's notes, we find a clue. The report is dated March 3, 1993, and it reads as follows. 
On listed date and time, Mr. Gove was contacted by telephone and advised that Bob Worth of Crime Stoppers had agreed to do a reenactment of his wife's death. However, Mr. Worth was having problems finding an actress to play the part of his wife. Mr. Gove was asked to see if he could help with this. If this was possible, he was advised to contact Mr. Worth. Pictures and information on this homicide was sent to Mr. Worth. So in March of 93, Crime Stoppers agrees to do a TV reenactment of Kiao's murder. The only thing they were missing was an actress to play the part of Kiao. But earlier in Royster's report, we find that Kenneth had already found a woman who was willing to play Kiao in the reenactment. So Crime Stoppers had everything it needed to go forward with the TV spot. Putting this TV spot together would take time, though. I think that this Crime Stoppers video is very likely to have been the trigger for Carol Eldridge to contact Dallas PD. Which leads us to a whole other slew of problems for the state. Carol testified at trial that it was her husband who called Crime Stoppers. She denied being the caller multiple times. However, in Watts' report, it clearly states that the tipster was a female. A supposedly anonymous female caller called Crime Stoppers with a tip to contact Carol with the information about the case. Carol then led the detectives to Troy, who eventually led them to Jesse. Watts clearly testified that Jesse's arrest was based on the Crime Stoppers tip. Crime Stoppers pays their tipsters upon arrest or indictment. Therefore, it's safe to assume that someone got paid. Another interesting anomaly in Jesse's case is the fact that he was never indicted before his trial. He sat in jail for nearly a year and a half after his arrest awaiting trial. And yet it wasn't until the morning of the trial when he was finally indicted. I've actually never seen anything like this. Literally moments before the trial was to begin, the lawyers agreed to quickly, quote, get this indictment out of the way. And this leads us to another question. Why wait until the day of trial to indict? The answer to that just might be Carol Eldridge. If Carol was indeed the Crime Stoppers tipster, the payment of her reward would be set into motion the minute Jesse was indicted. By waiting until trial to indict, the prosecution could ensure that she wouldn't be paid a reward until after the trial. Therefore, she could honestly testify that she hadn't been paid any reward money for her testimony. So now we have at least a theory as to why Carol directed Watts to speak with Troy. But at this point, we still have Troy saying that he doesn't know anything about the murder. Watts was asked at trial if he had any other evidence of Jesse's involvement other than Troy's story. This is from the trial. Question. Other than Troy's statements to you, is there anything else connecting Jesse Eldridge to this homicide? Watts' answer. Yes. Question. What? Answer. Miss Eldridge, his mother. Question. She had a feeling in her heart. Anything other than that? Answer. Well, she told me that he made one statement regarding she was discussing with the defendant about the motive, and she mentioned something about robbery. And he mentioned something on the line of why would anybody want those little necklaces? Well, I mean, that in and of itself, the fact that Miss Gove was wearing a small inexpensive necklace. This is in fact quite damaging for Jesse. This is information that was never released to the public. 
There was no way that Carol or Jesse could have known about Kiao's necklace. Maybe she's telling the truth after all. But there's just one problem. Kiao wasn't wearing a necklace. In Royster's notes at the beginning of the investigation, it was thought that Kia was wearing a necklace when she was killed. Kenneth had told Royster that his wife usually wore a particular necklace. But a few days later, Kenneth confirmed that the necklace was actually in Kiao's jewelry box. She had, in fact, not been wearing it on that day. So how could Carol possibly have had information from Jesse about Kiao wearing a necklace when she was killed when nothing about any necklaces was ever made public, and she was, in fact, not wearing one. Where could she have received that information? The answer is Detective Don Watts. I believe that this exchange about the necklace reveals that Watts was clearly feeding information to Carol. From the trial, question. Investigator Watts, you're aware of the fact that Mr. Gove testified that his wife was not missing any necklaces and, in fact, not wearing a necklace the day she left the house and was murdered. Did you know that? Answer. I don't know what he testified to. Nothing we could find that was missing other than the keys returned three days later. I had a discussion with him. There was a necklace with a small Buddha on it. She is a Buddhist. That was the conversation we had. She had other necklaces that she had not worn that day. Question. Did you know the necklace you discussed he found later in the house? She had not been wearing it that day. Answer. No, he had not told me that. He told me she was wearing one with a small Buddha on it. The only person involved in this case that thought Kia was wearing a necklace when she was killed was Don Watts. And by attempting to bolster his case by having Carol Elders testify that Jesse told her about the necklace... He exposed what I believe to be the truth in this case. Watts had a reputation for always getting his man, solving the unsolvable cases, and he wasn't about to let this case slip through his fingers. This instance alone is enough to call into question anything that Watts did on this case, or any case that he investigated for that matter. We've all heard the expression, one bad apple spoils the bunch. And in this case, from this point forward, everything that Watts touched was fruit from the poisonous tree. And let me give you another example. After several conversations with Watts, where he denied having any information about Kiao's murder, on February 23rd, Troy finally swore out his first affidavit. I've read you the affidavit before, so I'll just hit the highlights. After three months of being questioned by Watts, Troy stated the following about the morning Kiao was killed. Jesse and Troy were supposed to go jogging together early that morning. Troy woke up early that morning, and Jesse had gone jogging without him. Jesse never woke Troy up. Troy messed around the apartment for a few minutes, then went outside looking for Jesse. Troy says he saw Jesse walking toward the apartment from the direction of the crime scene. Jesse told Troy to call his mother and said, quote, I think I just killed somebody. Jesse was wearing Troy's white t-shirt that had part of the sleeves cut off and the shirt had blood spatters all over it. Troy says he saw Jesse later that day and he was no longer wearing the bloody white t-shirt. The key points here to remember are that Jesse didn't wake Troy up, Jesse jogged alone, 
and returned shortly after wearing Troy's white t-shirt covered in blood. What we never heard at trial, but we find in Watts' notes, is the fact that Troy's girlfriend Shauna actually corroborated Troy's story. On September 22, 1994, Watts interviewed Shauna Couples. These are Watts' notes from this interview. Contacted Shauna Couples. She is the girlfriend of Troy Eldridge, who is Jesse Eldridge's brother. She and Troy have parted company after years of being together. The reason for this parting is because Jesse had moved in with her and Troy. She was living with Troy and Jesse when the murder occurred. She said that the morning the murder occurred, Troy and Jesse had planned to go out to the school and play handball. She said that for some reason, Jesse had not woke Troy up. She recalls that Troy got up between 6 and 7 a.m. She stayed in bed about 30 minutes after Troy had gotten up. She did not know where Jesse was at. When she got up, she saw Jesse and Troy talking outside. A few minutes later, both came into the apartment. They did not act like there was any problem. Troy later told her that the complainant had been killed. She did not offer any more information. I requested that she not say anything to Troy or Jesse about our conversation. So here we have Shauna corroborating Troy's affidavit. She also says that Troy and Jesse had plans that morning, but Jesse never woke Troy up and left without him. But don't forget what I said earlier fruit from the poisonous tree. Watts didn't record this conversation or have Shauna write out her own statement or affidavit. These are his notes in his official report. And we already know that he has notes that weren't included in this report. But nonetheless, we do have what appears to be a corroborating statement here. Although there was a subtle conflict in the fact that Troy says that he was so upset that he called his mother and left, Shauna says that they came inside and acted like nothing happened and there's no mention of a white t-shirt that was covered in blood. But there is more to this page of Watts' notes. Right after the paragraph where Watts writes that he told Shauna not to tell Troy or Jesse about their conversation, the report reads as follows. On the same day at 2 p.m., quote, Jesse Eldridge called and wanted to know why I was investigating him for this murder. I set up an appointment for the next day at 1 p.m. to speak with him, end quote. I honestly can't figure this one out. Jesse has told me on multiple occasions that until the day he was arrested, he had no idea he was being investigated for this murder. He told me that he had never talked to any police about it other than the one conversation with Royster back in 1991. But here, Watts says that Jesse called him. They spoke and at least scheduled a meeting. So who's lying? Well, the plot thickens with Watts' trial testimony. At trial, Watts testified under oath that he had never once spoken to or met Jesse Eldridge until after he was arrested. So was Watts lying in this report, or was he lying at trial? When you consider the fact that Jesse had consistently stated that he had no idea he was being investigated until the day he was arrested, I have to believe that Watts was telling the truth at trial. But if that's true, then what was the point of this entry in the report? Why say that Jesse called, if he didn't? That's a question that I still do not have the answer to. At this point, it's been nearly a year since Carol Eldridge first arranged for Watts to talk to Troy. Watts had his affidavit and a semi-corroborating statement from Shauna, and yet still no arrest warrant. The problem is that Troy's affidavit wasn't enough for a conviction. 
with no corroborating physical evidence to back up his story and no witnesses to the actual offense, the case was shaky at best. Watts needed a witness, and Troy was all he had. Even Carol knew that Troy's affidavit wasn't going to be enough. On March 5th of 94, about two weeks after Troy wrote his first affidavit, Watts wrote this in his notes, quote, Spoke with Mrs. Eldridge again. She feels that Troy still knows more than he is saying. Mrs. Eldridge said that Troy had told her that Jesse told him and his girlfriend that morning while they were still in bed about the murder. Mrs. Eldridge said that she would speak with Troy again about the murder. End quote. This tells us two things. Number one, it further confirms that Carol was the one working with Watts to frame Jesse. And number two, it's another statement that conflicts with all of Troy's stories. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered ChampaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now let's jump back ahead to September of 1994. Troy has gone from having no knowledge of the murder to Jesse went jogging without him and came back wearing a bloody white t-shirt. Shauna confirmed that Troy was in bed with her that morning and Jesse never woke Troy up. About a month after Watts talked to Shauna, she and Jesse slept together. That occurred on October 20th. Troy wrote his second affidavit the next day. Watts was asked at trial if he thought that the affair had anything to do with Troy changing his story. Watts said that it did not, because at the time the affidavit was written, Troy didn't know about the affair yet. Another inconsistency. We know that the very morning that the affair took place, Troy actually called the police and accused Jesse of raping Shauna. And we know that that occurred before Troy wrote his affidavit. Nonetheless, Troy wrote a new, evolved affidavit. Again, I've read this to you before, so let me just break down the parts of this affidavit that conflict with his previous version of the story. Troy says that he didn't tell the whole story back in February because he was afraid that he would get into trouble. In this version, he and Jesse go jogging together. He couldn't keep up with Jesse, so he stopped and walked. He says he saw Jesse say hello to Kiao, and she nodded back at him. He says he saw Jesse grab her, and that Keo tried to get away but couldn't. He asks Jesse what he's doing, and Jesse tells him to get out of there. Troy got scared, jumped the fence, and ran back to the apartment. A few minutes later, Jesse ran up to the apartment. Troy saw blood on his shirt, and Jesse told him he had just killed someone and to go call his mom. 
Aside from the obvious big differences, there are some more subtle details that raise questions here as well. For starters, the idea of Jesse and Troy jogging together gives me pause. Jesse was in the best shape of his life and ran all the time. Troy, on the other hand, has a disability. When he was younger, he had the vertebrae in his neck fused together. He had, and still has, no mobility in his neck. He was also a heavy smoker. Running wasn't exactly his thing. Then we have his statement about jumping the fence. Not only would jumping the fence be very difficult given his disability, but it would also be odd because there was an opening in the fence right where Kiao was attacked. In this new and improved statement, Troy leaves out the color of the shirt, although it's still covered in blood. Despite the conflicts, Troy's new affidavit had broken the case. Watts had a witness who had actually seen the attack take place. Within six days, the warrant was signed and Jesse was arrested. Watts got his man. But Watts had missed something. Remember what had happened just a month prior to Troy writing his second affidavit. Watts had interviewed Shauna Couples. The statement that Shauna gave corroborated Troy's first affidavit, but after Troy changed his story, Watts forgot to return to Shauna to update hers. Shauna was never called to testify at trial, which is an absolute tragedy, because her statement directly conflicts with Troy's final affidavit. Remember that her statement was that Jesse never woke Troy up that morning, and Troy didn't go jogging. The problem with fabricating a completely false narrative is that it's very difficult to get all of the witnesses involved to tell the same story consistently, especially when the key witness keeps changing his story. I believe that it was for this exact reason that Shauna was simply dropped from the state's narrative. She attended the trial, but she was never called to testify, probably for the same reason that the prosecution never called Watts. We see nothing new from Troy until trial. We have no record of any of Jesse's interviews other than the polygraph examination which he passed. On the first day of the trial, the state presented its case, and their key witness was, of course, Troy Eldridge. Troy basically recited back to the court what he had said in his affidavit, with a few exceptions. At trial, we have a new addition to the story. Now Troy testifies that on the night before the murder, while they were at the party drinking, Jesse has a lock blade knife between half an inch to one inch wide and four to five inches long. This is the first we ever hear about this knife. What I find interesting is that the prosecutor knows to ask about it. It's odd because it's never mentioned in any note, report, or affidavit. How convenient that this new discovery of a knife that Jesse was carrying around the night before the murder just happens to fit the exact description that Sheila Spotswood gave for the only knife that could have possibly caused all of the wounds on Kiao. Troy also says that only himself, Jesse, and Shauna are in the apartment that morning. Tammy is nowhere to be found. And Troy says that Tammy did not live with them. Also in this story, Jesse is now wearing cut-off shorts and a sweatshirt with the sleeves cut off. Jesse wakes him up to play handball, but they decide to go for a jog instead. At trial, Troy is keeping up with Jesse and only a few feet behind him when they cross paths with Kiao, 
Kiao was walking in the opposite direction, so she was coming straight towards them. Troy says that Jesse and Kiao cross paths, they say hello, and Jesse stops to let Troy catch up. But then he grabbed Kiao. Things get a bit confusing here. First they cross paths and say hello, then Jesse stops and turns around to wait for Troy, but then Troy says that Kiao was facing Jesse when he grabbed her. This is from Troy's testimony. Troy, what's her position when he grabs her? Answer, she's still facing like opposite towards us as we are running. Okay. And Jesse stops and kind of turns around waiting for me. And he's not quite behind her or beside her. I mean, but he's enough behind her and he grabs her from behind. Question. So he comes up not completely behind her, but comes in from the backside? Yes, sir. Troy, how far away are you at this point? Maybe three feet, if that. Troy says that Kiao started screaming at that point. Time passes as Jesse is holding Kiao, now in the middle of the street. Kiao is screaming, Troy is screaming at Jesse, and Jesse is screaming at Troy. And again, Troy jumps the fence and runs home. At trial, Troy again states that after he got home, Jesse was walking, not running, but casually walking past the front of the school. Jesse's shirt is again spattered with blood, but he's not questioned about the color of the shirt. Again, Jesse tells Troy to call his mom. Troy does, and mom is there to pick him up within five minutes. At trial, this entire exchange happened outside of the apartment. Jesse and Troy never went back inside. Troy called his mom from a payphone, and Jesse simply walked off and left. Again, this is another reason why the prosecution never called Shauna Couples. Remember, her story is that Jesse left without Troy, and when Jesse returned, Troy went outside to talk to him, and they both came back into the apartment. Acting normal, like nothing was wrong. No blood on Jesse's shirt, and no call or trip to mom's house. In general, there is a complete lack of detail in all of Troy's stories. We start with having no knowledge of the crime, then we move on to Jesse coming home in a white t-shirt covered in blood. This story evolves into Troy jogging with Jesse and seeing him grab Kiao. Troy says that he was three feet away while Jesse was struggling with Kiao. Three feet away. All three of them are supposedly standing in the street screaming at each other. In the trial version, Jesse now returns to the apartment wearing a cutoff sweatshirt, still covered in blood. Jesse supposedly had killed Kiao after a massive struggle in broad daylight in a wide open field and then just walks home and tells Troy, quote, I think I just killed somebody. He doesn't say, I think I just killed that woman. He doesn't say, I think I just killed her. He says, I think I just killed somebody. As we move forward into our final segment, you will see that words are not just words. Words are not just sounds that fall out of our mouths. To say a word is to perform an action. And every action that we perform comes from a thought. Albeit conscious or subconscious, it takes a thought to put your tongue into motion. The words that you say open a window into your mind. 
step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. And if you add a strong emotion to the experience, the memory becomes even stronger. As most of you know, prior to starting this podcast, I spent my entire adult life working as a firefighter and a fire instructor. As a teacher, I spent many hours studying the human mind. You see, I was teaching fireground tactics to firefighters. The information that I presented to my students was quite literally life and death. Considering the weight of the task at hand, I devoted myself to ensuring that my students not only absorbed what I was teaching them, but also retained it. I did this by tapping into what is known as the effective learning domain of the brain. Simply stated, this is the emotional response of the human mind. Emotions are the gateway to long-term memory. Extreme happiness, sadness, fear, hatred. Over the years, I found that if I could tie a particular emotion to the content that I was covering, my students would retain the information, even recite it back to me years later. Have you ever heard a song and it immediately takes you back to a particular experience in your mind? This is a phenomenon that we have all experienced. Most people credit the vivid memories to the song. Artists have literally written songs about songs bringing back memories. But the truth is that the song has little to do with the experience. If this total recall of events was because of the magical powers of a song, we would live our lives and rewind every time we turn on the stereo. Think about the memories that come back to you when you hear that song. What types of memories are they? Your first kiss? A wedding? A funeral? The reason that the song takes you back to those moments is a direct effect of the affective memory phenomenon. You were in the middle of an experience. All of your senses were engaged. There were smells, sounds, sights, tastes happening all at once. If in that moment you experience an extreme emotion, everything that was happening around you was permanently burned into your long-term memory. Therefore, when you hear that song again, the one that was playing when you felt that strong emotion, the long-term memory center of your brain is triggered to take you back to that moment. You relive the event vividly as if you were standing in the same place, doing the same thing. The same is true of your other senses. If you were at your happiest as a child, sitting at your grandmother's kitchen table while she baked snickerdoodles, no doubt for the rest of your life, every time you smell snickerdoodles baking, your mind will take you back to that moment. But even without the sensory triggers, these memories are still concreted into your mind. There's a reason that I'm taking the time to explain this. Troy Eldridge, if we believe his story, experienced a traumatic event. He described an event infused with extreme fear, a physical event, 
an event that he personally witnessed while experiencing an extreme emotion. This is the type of memory that sticks with you for life. An event that he should easily be able to recall in vivid detail. A lie, on the other hand, a lie is much more difficult to remember. Lies evolve over time. When repeating a lie, you don't have the advantage of recalling an event that you actually witnessed. You don't have those sensory memories. To repeat a lie, you have to remember something that you said. And every time you mess up one of the details when you're retelling your story, the narrative gets even further confused in your mind. Eventually, all of the details from all of the different versions of the story get so misconstrued in your mind that you're no longer recalling a previous statement. Instead, you're trying to make up a new narrative that fits the bits and pieces that you remember. And that's exactly what I asked Troy Eldridge to do two weeks ago. Mike couldn't make this trip with me. So I hooked up with our web guy, Chris, to tag along with me on the hunt for Troy. As it turns out, it was a good thing that I had Chris with me. Troy was not an easy man to find. I had received a lead that Troy was working and living at a hotel in Seagaville. That was our first stop. When we arrived, the clerk at the desk wasn't a lot of help, but we noticed a couple of workers in the corner speaking Spanish. Chris happens to be fluent in Spanish, so he asked them about Troy. The workers explained to Chris that Troy hadn't worked or lived at the hotel in years. We left the hotel and tried two other addresses for Troy with no luck. After three strikes, we decided to change the plan and look up his mother, Carol Eldridge. We found an address in the middle of nowhere, Texas. After a long drive, we thought we had struck out again. At the address listed, we found a small, single-wide trailer tucked back off the road. It was surrounded by overgrown trees and shrubbery and cluttered with trash. The house looked abandoned. There were no cars in the driveway, no tracks in the sand, and no signs of any recent activity. Just as we were about to drive away, I noticed a trash can at the end of the driveway. It was the type of trash can that is provided by the trash company the kind that they pick up if you are no longer a paying customer. There had to be someone living in the house. We decided to give it a try. Tree branches were scraping the sides of my rental car as I pulled into the driveway. As I approached the door, I was immediately struck with irony. While the scent of stale cigarette smoke was hitting me in the face, I read a sign on the door that said, quote, This is a non-smoking establishment. I knocked on the door and I was greeted by a man who appeared to be in his mid-forties. The man was short and slightly overweight, his balding hair was a bit disheveled, and he seemed to have difficulty turning his head. There he stood, right in front of me, wearing cut-off sweatpants and an affliction t-shirt with the sleeves cut off. I was looking into the eyes of Troy Eldridge. for Carol Eldridge. My name is Bob. I'm I'm an investigative journalist doing a story about her son Jesse. Yeah, and I was the one who uh, testified against him because he lived with me at the time it happened. Oh, are you Troy? Yeah. Oh, that's actually one of the reasons why we were looking for Carol was to find you. 
okay. Would you mind chatting with us for a few minutes? No. Okay. All right. Hold on. Let me tell my mom. She's in bad health. Okay. If you want, you can go back here. Okay. Sounds good. We stood in the living room a bit confused. Troy had pointed towards the back bedroom, but I didn't feel comfortable going into his bedroom alone. So I opted to just stand there and listen to his caged bulldog bark at me. Okay, I didn't know where you wanted to stay. Uh, back here if you want. I mean, okay. this is where I stay. It's a little okay. messy right now. Uh, all right. Troy walked Chris and I back to his bedroom. As I entered, I made a quick scan of the room. Relatively neat, a twin-sized bed at one end and at the other a desk. The desk was full of VHS tapes, an ashtray full of cigarette butts, a hot plate, a frying pan, and a large butcher knife. The room was dark and the cigarette smell was almost overwhelming. Troy was friendly. He offered me a seat on a wooden chair and offered for Chris to sit on his bed. I accepted. Chris declined. Once we sat, I got right down to business. Trial testimonies. If you were the the main witness that that put him away, so I guess first of all, can you tell me what you remember about what happened? That morning it happened. Yeah. we used to, he lived with me, uh-huh. and we used to go jogging and work out. Uh-huh. Then, you know. Anyways, uh, <laughs> we went jogging, and we used to jog around Spruce High School. Uh-huh. And, well, in the evening, we'd watch, we, I lived right across the street uh-huh. from Spruce and these apartments, and in the evening, we'd watch this lady and her husband walk around Spruce. Okay. And... I didn't know who she was at the time, and neither did Jesse, and uh, he would make comments about her and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Anyways, the next, I believe the next morning, uh, we were jogging around Spruce, and if you know where Spruce is, we started going around the right side, the other side of it. We spotted or I did I know I mean this lady out in her housecoat walking her dog and Jesse you know he had just gotten out of prison the second time right so he was a little ahead of me uh-huh and he grabbed her okay and uh I just stopped and I just you know I didn't know what she was doing or what he was doing and I said Jesse what the fuck are you doing uh-huh and he just looked at me and i just you know i just i just froze and he said Troy, just go just get the, you know just get the fuck away from me uh-huh and i just turned i just turned around and i left i mean i went through the yard of the school and i jumped you know little fence, whatever, and I just ran up to my apartment. Uh-huh. That's the last time I've seen him for a couple of days. He never came back after? And, uh, well, yeah, eventually he did. Uh-huh. But, but, I mean, that morning he didn't come back? No, sir. Okay. Um, so what was the, did you just, did you see him grab her? Or? Yeah. Okay. What was the, what, what was the dog doing? I don't know. I, you know, I wasn't thinking about no dog. I was, you know, saw him, you know, I'd seen him. 
in the past, you know, beat people up. And I mean, he was a violent person. Right. I, I mean, some things I've seen him do was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And I just took off. Okay. And he came back to, I mean, in between all this, I, uh, I, you know, that later on that morning, the police showed up. You know, the detectives and everything. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I just told him I didn't know nothing. Anything, period. Uh-huh. And, uh, that was it. I mean, for, and for a couple of days, he didn't show up. And one morning, or one, maybe mid-afternoon, something like that, he, uh, came walking down the street in front of Spruce uh-huh. on a sidewalk. And he walked... At that morning, he was wearing one of my shirts. It was like an army shirt. It was, I mean, it, it was stained, and I knew it was blood. Uh-huh. And I knew, I mean, and he didn't say nothing to me. He just, you know, and I would work with my dad, you know, at the time. And he didn't say nothing to me, and he told me to call my mom, and, you know, go to work. And, and that was it. I mean... I didn't say nothing, and... Was that that morning? Because I think at trial, he said that morning he came back. No, he didn't come back that morning. Okay. And, you know, he had told my mom at one time, he was reading the paper about it, and uh-huh. he told my mom one day, you know, that she had nothing of value. Mm-hmm. Why did, you know, somebody rob her like that or kill her? And, right. And so I just, I mean, there's nothing more I can say that, you know, her keys did end up in the mailbox, mm-hmm. you know, in her mailbox, and that's, I mean, that's pretty much it, you know? Right. And, now, can you try to remember, you know, seeing something like that, if you can kind of picture it in your mind, do you, do you remember, like, what color clothes she was wearing, how big the dog was? There's a little dog. Little dog? Yeah. Okay. You don't remember what color clothes she was wearing or anything? No, no. I mean, like I said, it was, you know, it was early morning, and she was a, come to find out, she was a cook at Spruce. Right. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I have no idea. I was stunned to hear Troy's retelling of the story. Red flags were flying up one after another. Just to name a few... Troy now recalls that Kia was wearing a house coat. And as we know, she was actually wearing a light blue nylon jogging suit. He also says that Kia was walking her dog when Jesse attacked her. And we know that Kia was most certainly not walking a dog when she was attacked. Troy also says now that Jesse did not return to the apartment on the day of the murder. I asked him twice to be sure. Troy is now positive that Jesse disappeared and he didn't see him for days after the attack. He did, however, get the part right about Jesse showing up wearing his bloody shirt. That's consistent with his previous statements. Although now, it's days after the murder when Jesse returns. And Jesse came walking up to the apartment still wearing the bloody shirt that he had on when he supposedly killed Kiao. Except now it's not a plain white t-shirt. In this latest version, Jesse is wearing an army shirt. At this point, I'm five minutes into the interview, and Troy Eldridge has already completely impeached every single aspect of his trial testimony and affidavits. 
As the conversation went on, Carol seemed to be getting perturbed. You know, he, he had mentioned to, you know, what? Yeah. Several times throughout the interview, Carol would scream at Troy from her room on the other end of the trailer. I got the distinct impression that she wasn't happy about him talking to me. Next, I asked Troy about the Crime Stoppers and reward money. Notice how confident he sounds when he says that he did not get the money. But as you're about to hear, his tone is very different when I ask if his parents received any money. It was like three years before you wrote your affidavit. And, and, and the police records say your, your mom is the one eventually called in and told him to get a hold of you. Did she get the, the Crime Stoppers payout for that before or after the trial? I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. Did, did you end up with the reward from no. Kenneth, the $10,000 reward? No, I did not. Wonder, did, did anybody, did your parents or anybody? I don't think, I mean, I don't know. I, I know I didn't. Next, Troy gives us a bit of insight as to why he eventually changed his story to implicate Jesse. Detective Watts and his partner ended up at uh, the Sonic Drive-In in Ball Springs. Mm-hmm. After so many years, and finally I said, look, you know, I don't know nothing, and they said, well, Jesse's trying to implicate you in it. And I don't know, I don't know. And that's when I turned, you know, turned around and said, look, this is really what happened. And they took our DNA. They found both our DNA supposedly at the crime scene. Uh, this is something that we have never heard before. According to Troy, Detective Watts told him that Jesse was trying to implicate him in the murder. He also told Troy that his DNA was found on the scene along with Jesse's. Neither of these two things are true. According to both Jesse and Watts' trial testimony, Watts never even spoke to Jesse during the investigation. I think that this exchange may give us a bit of insight into how Watts got his reputation for getting reluctant witnesses to talk. Telling a potential witness that their DNA was found on a crime scene along with someone else's, and also that that other person is pointing the finger at them, is a pretty damn effective tool to get someone to say just about anything you want. After about 15 minutes of listening to Troy's stories, I had finally had enough. I looked him right in the eyes and told him that I knew that he was lying. As I confronted him with the evidence, he just kept repeating, that's my story. Why would I change my story? This has always been my story. Troy's nervousness became painfully apparent when I told him that the Innocence Project of Texas had taken Jesse's case and that he would likely be called at some point to answer for his testimony. At that moment, Troy began to look at his feet, and with trembling hands, he reached for a cigarette. Throughout our entire 20-minute exchange, Troy was never rude or unkind. He remained friendly even to the point of asking me if it would bother me if he lit that cigarette. My impression of Troy Eldridge was that he was scared. As I confronted him with every piece of evidence that conflicted with his statements, he had the look and demeanor of a man whose past sins were suddenly and unexpectedly coming back to haunt him. Before I left, I gave Troy one last chance to tell me the truth. 
It's a lie. I know that it's a lie. Everybody knows that it's a lie. If that's if that's all you want to tell us. I mean, that's all I got. All right. Well, I won't I won't keep you. I do appreciate you giving us the time. I appreciate it. Yeah, but let me leave you with a. I'll give you a card if you want to get get in touch with me or anything. It's got my phone number, myself. Oh, I'm sorry, my email and everything on there. Okay. If you want to keep in touch and we'll show ourselves out. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Yep. Throughout our entire conversation, no matter how many times I told Troy that I thought he was lying, never once did he get angry. Never once did he tell me that he knows what he saw. He never told me that what I was saying was impossible because he saw it happen with his own eyes. The most aggressive response that I ever got from Troy was, this has always been my story. Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Michael Bussing is our executive producer. Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show is created and scored by PutThemInASong.com. Tate Krupa designed and created our logo. And Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com created and maintains our website. I want to thank our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Sarah Hoyt, and Desiree Dunn. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send us new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.